0: Okay, the reading today is taken from Luke, chapter 18, verse 35, through to chapter 19, verse 10. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Michael, just welcome you up to share what the Lord has placed on your heart for us.
1: Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for your word to us. Lord, we pray this morning that again it might be a living word as we come to know Christ better and your great plan and purpose for our lives. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, as uh, Graham said earlier, um, when we talked today about identity, he said that you've been working through Genesis, you're having a bit of a hiatus now, and you're looking at some, I don't know what you, the words were, but something like contemporary issues or something, or yeah, yeah. that sort of thing, themes. And so I thought, well, um, this is something that I've been in Luke a lot lately, and I thought this is something that uh, the Lord's spoken to me about and maybe a good thing to share with you. So I've chosen this passage in Luke's Gospel uh, with the idea of what does this tell us about who we are? And of course, identity is a big issue these days, isn't it, in society? The whole idea of our identity is uh, very much up for grabs at the moment. And it's quite interesting to think about uh, what that concept of identity involves uh, I think one of the interesting things to me is always how do people introduce themselves? So if I came to Jason, who I met for the first time this morning, I didn't say, um, ask Jason any questions about himself. But Jason, how would you introduce yourself to me? Is that a fair... I, I mean, just like, what, how do you normally introduce yourself? I'm Jason, and what would be the, first, the next thing you would say normally? I'm... Um, I'm a Kiwi, okay? So national identity, that's important, isn't it? Mm. How else might you identify yourself? Louise, did I see your hand go up? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> I think culturally we always say, "You know, what do you do? Yeah. But other cultures say where do you come from, what is your you Exactly. You're, you're anticipating me very well. <laughs> I think that's very true. In our culture and in Western culture generally, the, the first thing we used to say, we usually would say what our occupation is. Is, is that true? Uh, probably even more than we talk about ethnicity would say, I'm so-and-so and I do this. Is that, is that a fair comment? Yeah. It's interesting because it says something about Western psyche because it really talks about me and essentially about my achievements. And, and often people will then go on to tell you about how they got to where they are and even things like their degrees will come out, and I always find that fascinating. Um, Talk to young people, and the first thing they'll tell you if they're a student is what they're studying and and what level they're at. And the number of people who tell me very proudly that they're doing a PhD, and I'm not looking at you, Alexander, because you're a very humble man, (laughs) but the first thing they'll tell you is that they're studying for a PhD. And and good on them. That's, That's a worthwhile thing to do. But it's interesting that's how they think that the identity is tied up in what they're doing and what they have achieved. Now, of course, you go to a traditional culture um, or an Eastern culture, and what's usually the first thing you'll be told? Something about their family. About their family. Exactly. You'll hear their papa, you'll, you'll hear that they're the, uh, you know, the son or the daughter of so-and-so, and this is their family, this is their tribe, uh, this is their culture so it's much more it's less individualistic and it's much more relational it's not what they've achieved or anything but it's who they are in relation to their people group interesting isn't it? another thing about identity is it can be determined in two ways well i think it is determined in two ways firstly identity is something that's given to you actually i mean it's all very nice for you to describe who you are but if i if i say to graham you tell me about Jason. He might tell me different things. Well, I could tell you a few He could tell me a few. <laughs> Exactly, you see. And, and it's, it's quite scary this, the extent to which identity is actually given to us by others. Uh, Kimberly and I, we're, we're well, I'm, I shouldn't speak for Kimberly, for myself. I'm always a few years behind everybody else. And so I've just started watching Downton Abbey. We, we, we sort of thought there's absolutely nothing on TV. What can we find? And we found Downton Abbey. And we know a lot of people have watched that. So we thought we better at least know what's going on. And it's scary just how much identity, even a 100 years ago, was forced on you. You know, we, the family you were born to, essentially defined who you could be in society. You were locked into an identity. I think of um, Nelson Mandela, and remember his, uh, his book, Long Walk to Freedom, the story of his life. And what was the first thing that happened to him once he was sent to Robben Island? If if you've seen the movie or read the book, you you might remember. What was the first thing they did to him and the other 12 or 13 or whatever young men who were convicted? They gave him a number? Yeah. They gave him a number, they did something even worse than that. They took their trousers off them and issued them with shorts. The biggest insult they could do. If you're familiar with African culture, that's throughout Africa. As a preacher, I could not preach in shorts in Africa. I could not wear shorts in Africa. Because boys wear shorts, men wear trousers, and men who are any, of any worth certainly wear trousers. Is that right, Graham? It's just a little side. I, someone in my parish was uh, doing a mission in Sri Lanka, and made the big faux pas of turning up in shorts and the elders actually had to have a special meeting before he preached to decide if he could actually get up and preach and they were so embarrassed by his lack of cultural awareness so the first thing they did to Mandela was they put him in shorts and they actually said to him, you are going to be called boy because that's how we regard you and that's how we're going to treat you well, you can imagine Mandela was not going to let that define his identity and so he protested until they got they got their trousers back it took some years i think from memory but there was a man who had a sense of call a sense of destiny and there was no way he was going to let someone take his sense of identity away from him so identity can come two ways it can be imposed on you It's how others see you, but it's also how you see yourself. Now, in the postmodern West, we've gone to the other extreme now, and we have decided that you can totally identify yourself, regardless of what anyone else thinks, regardless of what nature says, regardless of what common sense would say. You now just say who you are. And there's an Act going through Parliament now, you might be aware, that's been brought in, uh, not covertly, but without proper discussion, and people will now be able to choose their agenda simply by their own will. There won't be any need for anyone else's consultation. It's totally your decision, which I think is quite bizarre. But that's where we've got to. Right, why did I choose this passage? Well, let's think of a few things to put this in context. Firstly, what's what's the background in Luke to chapters 18 and 19? Well, whenever you read Luke's Gospel, you've always got to start... In Luke chapter 4, Jesus' sermon in Nazareth, where he gets up, remember, and he takes the scroll. It's his first sermon, and he really sets out his mission. And let me just read that. He quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind." To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. That's his manifesto, his mission statement. Do you note a couple of things in there? The Lord has anointed me as God's anointing. Yeah, that's his identity. But what are some of the things he's going to do? Thinking of the reading we've just had. That's right, he's going to reach the poor. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to set captives free. You know, blindness is the one thing that only God could heal. We know that from John chapter 9. Remember the man born blind? And when the man is being interrogated about who has uh, healed him and the Pharisees are trying to make out that Jesus is a charlatan, the man says... Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Elijah had raised the dead, hadn't he? But no one had healed a man born blind. Only God can do that. So when Jesus says he has come to give recovery of sight to the blind, he's making a big claim. So that's the first thing you need to bear in mind as Jesus comes to Jericho. Secondly, you need to remember chapter 9 and verse 51, which is another very important verse in Luke's Gospel, is when Jesus sets his face For Jerusalem, the beginning of the journey through Luke's gospel, which will end at Jerusalem, and it will end in chapter 19. So we're at the end of that journey. And on that journey along the way, Jesus has taught through the towns. He has hangers on who go with him, including Pharisees, sympathetic Pharisees, God-fearing Pharisees. And then there are the crowds, and he is teaching them. And just before the passage that we have heard read... There are three interesting little bits. In chapter 18, firstly, there's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, the Pharisee who says, thank God, I'm not like other men. He's very confident in his identity. And then the, phar- then the tax collector who's beating his breast saying, forgive me, for I'm a terrible sinner. And what does Jesus say? The tax collector was the one who went away justified. Now, start joining the dots. We've had a parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now we meet a chief tax collector. So just bear that in mind. And then we have the disciples stopping the children coming to Jesus in chapter 18 and verses 15 to 17. This is immediately proceeding. And what does Jesus say? Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. What goes on in the passage we've just heard? For both the blind beggar and for the tax collector. People try to stop them reaching Jesus. So there must be a connection there, mustn't there? And then lastly immediately before this in verses 18 to 30 of chapter 18. I'm glad to see you've all got your Bibles open. I I, I keep having to remind my people of this too. It's good to bring a Bible or a phone if if you're only reading the scriptures on it. The rich man of course is told to go and sell everything. The rich ruler. He can't People are shocked when Jesus says it's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into God's kingdom. And what's the response? Who then, who then can be saved? That's the last question before we move into this passage. And does not this passage answer that question? Who can be saved? A blind beggar can be saved. Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, a sinner, he can be saved. But before that happens, there's a change of identity. Let's quickly look at that. Jesus comes to Jericho. The blind beggar is sitting by the road. What's his identity? What's the identity he's been given? Okay, he's identified by his physical ailment. That's telling, isn't it? Who's that person? Oh, he's the cripple. He's the blind man. That's how we tend to identify people. But we'll see that's not what Jesus, how Jesus identifies him. So he's identified by his physical ailment. What's the second thing he's identified by? His occupation. Very Western, isn't it? He's a beggar. But it wasn't an occupation. It was an indictment on him. Why were people blind? And this man wasn't born blind. Why do we know that? Because we're told he wants to recover his sight. So he could see. He now doesn't see. What does that tell people? He has come under God's judgment, he's a sinner. And he's paying for it. So he's on the margins, both physically, geographically, but also socially. And so when he calls out for Jesus, what do people say? Shh. You started it. Shh. Shut up, actually. Luke doesn't tell us that. They told him to be quiet. Mark's less polite. In Mark's gospel, they say, shut up. This man won't be bothered with you if he's a man of God. Think back to Jesus saying, do not hinder people coming to me. So this man is identified as an outsider. How do they identify Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. So, Kes wants to know what the noise is? It's Jesus of Nazareth. What does that tell us about the crowds with Jesus? Isn't that the lowest description of Jesus you could come across? You know, that's like Graham from Tapahu, isn't it? It doesn't tell us that he's anyone very important, which of course he is. You know, Graham, co pastor of a Bible. That sounds better. Graham from Jesus of Nazareth these people aren't they're not putting Jesus up very high at all what does the man call out? Jesus, son of David isn't that extraordinary? that his understanding of Jesus' identity even though he literally can't see but presumably has heard of him is that he is the son of David the Messiah. This is a artist's impression of the story and I think it's got quite a lot of theological depth. There is the blind man and rightly he is painted looking desperate. He's desperate to see Jesus. He's been labelled blind and he's now been told to shut up so he's now been muted as well. But instead of accepting that identity, he's calling out to Jesus, son of David. He has eyes of faith, and he believes that Jesus has the power to heal him. He believes Jesus has the compassion to reach out to him, or he wouldn't bother Jesus. And he is prepared to accept Jesus' lordship, we find out, when he gets up and he then follows him so this man is quite extraordinary the crowds are looking every which way but at jesus or the blind man and jesus significantly has his eyes shut why i believe because the artist is saying jesus is identifying with the blind man why else would he shut his eyes There's something going on between them, and what's the barrier between them? The crowd. Those who don't really see, even though they're looking around. And you know, Jesus does a brilliant thing. What does he do when the man calls out?
0: Does he ask him a question?
1: What does he say he's to do? Before that? Yeah. Does he tell the man to come to him? The blind man? No. What does he do? He says to the crowd, bring him to me. What's the significance of that? More than that, they are now Jesus' servants. And they are now serving the blind man whom they've told to shut up. To get them to do that, Jesus is turning the tables and he's making them serve this man whom they despise. And they are now having to obey the command of the son of David. Jesus is king after all and he can tell people what to do. And this man comes, he is asked, what do you want? Not a cruel question but a question to reveal this man's heart. He's a beggar after all, so presumably he would normally ask for money. But he's not going to lose this opportunity, is he? This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he goes for the jackpot. I want to recover my son. And Jesus says, Your faith has healed you. (coughs) Jesus sees what's going on in this family. He sees his trust and so he changes his identity. He goes from being a blind beggar to a follower and a worshipper of the Lord Jesus and goes on with him. And the crowd marvel. They praise God. And you think maybe the scales are beginning to fall from their eyes. But read on. Who is the second person? Zacchaeus. He has a name. What does it mean? Comes from the Hebrew word Zedek. Righteousness. This is the son of righteousness. What a name for a chief tax collector. And how good a tax collector is he? Very good. He's a chief tax collector. And he's also wealthy or rich. Think back a few verses. What happens to rich people? Very hard for a rich person to get into heaven. What's wrong with Zacchaeus? He's not only too rich, but he's a traitor. He is hated. Not only I mean Are there any tax collectors here? Anyone work for IRD here? I've got a a lawyer who works for IRD. down there, so I've got to be a little bit careful. Most people don't like tax collectors even today. Not that they don't like them personally, of course. They don't like their job. It's dirty work. Well, it was a lot more dirty in those days because you weren't collecting taxes for the government, or at least not the Jewish government. You were collecting taxes for the Romans so they could oppress you further to arm their soldiers and pay their wages. So for a Jew to collect money on behalf of the Romans was trick, trick You were a traitor. So you were hated for that. But more than that, you got your cut, of course, and essentially you discern, determined what your cut was. I mean, the Romans knew what they wanted, and you, whatever you got, you could give the Romans what they wanted, and you kept the rest. Now, the fact that he's a wealthy tax collector it says that there's been a lot of the rest... Okay, he's taken a good cut. So doubly despised and hated. And here's another problem. Don't take this personally. He was short. And people sometimes can be quite hard on short people. And he couldn't get to Jesus. Normally, short people would get a pass through the crowd, wouldn't they? Children get a pass through you let them to the front so they can see. If Zacchaeus tried to get through the crowd, he's more likely to get a knife in his back than a seat at the front. So he doesn't risk it. He does what no self-respecting man would do. He runs. Now this might sound strange to us, but in the Middle East, men, if they value their dignity, do not run. And certainly, they do not climb trees. That's like wearing shorts again. And there's an interesting story that came out. Uh, the chap who was the ambassador, the American ambassador to Cairo back in the early '60s under JFK, he was. Uh, you know, you imagine the American embassy in Egypt's pretty flash. Big compound, wall around it, trees in it, nice gardens. And the embassy was throwing a garden party. And the ambassador, whose name was John Bardot, was enthusiastic. He liked the good party, so he was setting up for it. And he wanted some light strung around the trees. So as an enthusiasm, he actually climbed up a tree to hang a light. Of course, there were Egyptian servants in the compound. And they saw him. And they were absolutely... Here is the American ambassador climbing a tree. Goodness knows whether he's wearing shorts or not, but he was climbing a tree. You know, it became such a big scandal that President Nasser actually rang, the President of Egypt rang the American embassy and said, could this be true? The whole country was appalled. So you can imagine Zacchaeus running and climbing a tree identifies him as a man of no self-respect of no dignity in the eyes of the people. But what does Jesus do? He calls out, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go to your house today. Jesus, remember, came to seek and to save the lost. He knows what's going on in Zacchaeus' mind and in his heart. He knows how people regard Zacchaeus. So he does something equally culturally inappropriate. He invites himself to dinner, and you do not do that. But not only does he invite himself to dinner, but he invites himself to dinner at the person, the one person whose house he should never go into. He will automatically become unclean. Because Zacchaeus is a sinner. Now, Jesus is doing something here rather as he was when he told the crowd to get the blind beggar. He is turning the tables and he is deflecting their hatred from Zacchaeus now to himself. They are scandalized and they say, don't they? When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. In other words, Jesus is not the son of David if he does a thing like that. And they grumble against him. Interesting, isn't it? How Jesus sees people compared with how we see them and even how they see themselves. And this man... Zacchaeus, before Jesus can even say what he needs to do, is gushing out, "I will sell all my possessions, or sell half, give half back to those of, to the poor, then I will give, restore fourfold to anyone whom I've defrauded." That's ridiculous. He's defrauded everybody. He's made millions out of them. There's no way he can pay them back four times over. But again, his heart is revealed, isn't it? And it's revealed in response to what Jesus has done for him. Jesus' love came first. Jesus called out Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And he responds back. And then the ultimate line, when Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. His identity, he was an outcast, he was hated, he was a traitor, but he has now become again a son of Abraham. He has recovered the identity that he had lost. And you know that makes him the blind man's brother, doesn't he? He has rejoined the family. The blind man recovered his sight. He's a son of Abraham. Now Zacchaeus has become a son of Abraham. The blind man didn't have to lose anything, did he? He didn't have any money to lose. Zacchaeus has had to give everything, unlike the rich ruler that couldn't. He's done that and he has been restored. His identity is now. As a son of Abraham. So what does that say to us? When you introduce yourself next time, what are you going to say? I'm Graham. I'm a son of Abraham. (laughs) Better still, I'm a follower of Jesus. Paul in Galatians says only one thing matters. And that is faith working through love. That's what we see here, isn't it? We see faith working through love. Jesus' love, God's love, and then a faith response. Now, N.T. Wright said that the one thing that really identifies us or helps us claim our identity or understand our identity is when we're loved. I think that's so true. It's as we're loved we actually discover who we are, isn't it? That's why there's so many children out there now who've got no idea who they are is because they haven't really known love. The Christian identity is relational. We are loved by God. And so we have faith. And then the idea is we are part of a new family, the church. And that love should now be passed on. Everyone should be secure in their identity in Christ so long as they know the love of your brothers and sisters. And so that's, I think, the call to us today. In the church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. It's occupation, doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Or at least it's not defining of us. It's are we in Christ? Do we have faith? Do we know His love? And do we love others? Let me finish with Another picture, a picture of Zacchaeus. And this illustrates it beautifully, I think. There is Zacchaeus up the tree. Look at the faces on the ground below. What do you see? Those faces, what are they? Shields, masks. These are blind people. They have no eyes. No eyes of faith. They don't see Jesus as the Son of God. Zacchaeus, what do you see around him? He's a flower, isn't he? And each of those petals is a mask. You can even see a face, a sad face, in the one on the right of about 4 o'clock. What Jesus has done is he has opened Zacchaeus' heart with his love by seeking after Zacchaeus he has opened his heart and what does he see? he sees the star of David here is a true son of Abraham and so Zacchaeus' identity is transformed from a sad face a sad mask to being an open flower and Jesus is going to his house today Father, we do thank you that the only identity that matters is the identity that you give us. Lord, we thank you that you do see us through the eyes of mercy and love. We thank you that you have sought us, that you have called us. We who were lost are now found. Lord, we thank you that all that matters now is that we are your children. Lord, we thank you that it doesn't matter what we do, what we've achieved, what others think of us. All that matters is faith working through love. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, to be secure in our identity so that we can make others secure in theirs, so that we can love others, that we can seek out and bring the loss to you so that they too might come into your family and know the wonderful joy of being your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.